live from Tel Aviv, two nice Jewish boys. Hi, I'm Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Noor Menninger. When we hear about cyber attacks, systems getting hacked, and ransomware, we usually imagine a bunch of masked hoodlums in a dark basement, probably on the outskirts of Moscow, plotting to bring anarchy upon the world. What we seldom imagine, though, are a bunch of intelligent, successful computer scientists in a luxurious office looking for security breaches, hacking into systems, and sometimes even taking part in cyber warfare. Keren Elazari was a geeky kid in the 90s when she discovered at a very young age that her peculiar hobby actually had a name, hacking. It wasn't long before she was participating in international hacking conventions, serving in a secret military intelligence unit, and finally receiving grants to conduct research in her field. Keren Elazari was the first ever Israeli woman to lecture on TED. She's an analyst and a cyber researcher at Tel Aviv University, and her articles were published in many international magazines. We're very excited to have her here today to talk about cybersecurity and hacking. This podcast is made in cooperation with the Jewish Journal, www.jewishjournal.com. Also in cooperation with Secret Tel Aviv, Israel's largest online social network community in English. Subscribe to Two Nice Jewish Boys on iTunes. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to rate us. And of course, we want to hear your feedback. So let us know what you think in the comments or send us a message on Facebook. Hi, Karen. How are you? Hi, Hi guys. I'm great. Thanks for having me. I hope you're ready to hack the planet. Yes. That's what we're going to talk about. I have no technological abilities whatsoever. I hope that's not a problem. Well, yeah. you'd be surprised. Actually, nowadays, the cybersecurity industry is growing so fast. There is uh-huh. a continuous need for more security researchers and more security talent. Do you, do you need to code to be uh, a so- secu- Programming, programming is one element of the cybersecurity world, but it's not the only element. So there are jobs and there are things that you can do uh, that does not requ- do not require you or do not mandate knowledge of computer programming. I it is definitely a, a benefit. I graduated you. film school and Aton didn't barely, graduate. <laughs> barely even that. Film school, so yeah. Well, it's... one thing uh, that both of you could do is make TV shows uh, or movies about hackers. So right. There's also a continuous need for that. So, okay. okay. Yeah. So let's start with uh, something like very general and basic can you explain the internet no i'm kidding okay can you, <laughs> TCP can, you, IP. Um, can you tell us a bit what cybersecurity is and what is sure. hacking sure absolutely so uh for the benefit of the listeners maybe some of you have actually already heard about the topic of cybersecurity before but you've heard it mostly in the context of information security right even in the 90s people would talk about information security how do you maintain the secrecy of your credit card number or your email password today maybe we'll think we're well thinking we are thinking about the mechanisms that prevent somebody who is not us from logging into our Facebook profile mm-hmm. for example or when you you um, um, do a, a money transfer, a wire transfer between the, the different banks. What's to prevent somebody who is not you or the recipient to get a hold of the, the money? Yeah. So these are issues that are part of this world, which is called information security. But the, this is a really important but from my point of view. What we have experienced in the past 10 years, in the past decade, is that this field is actually now touching and encroaching 
uh, onto a lot of other aspects of our life. So today, cybersecurity is also about how do I make sure that the smart TV that you have in your living room is not listening to your conversations and that a malicious... Why would it do that? Oh, great question. I mean, well, doesn't, one... doesn't my TV have better things to do? Your TV would turn off <laughs> the second it heard a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a great question. Why would your TV listen to you or why, in general, any home appliance... Uh, will be internet connected, listening to conversations or recording data. But the reality is, even though we maybe don't want devices like that, these sorts of smart appliance, appliances are coming. And they're coming because the people who make these appliances, the TV manufacturers or the refrigerator companies or even your washing machine company, they are actually compelled by business um, motivations to make devices smarter, to sell them for more money because they are smart. So now you have... For example, a useless app to control your washing machine, or you can... Hey, hey, hey. Maybe it's not useless. Hey. Sorry. <laughs> I like to control my... Wa I have control issues over my washing machine. Yeah, so. right. So there is a market. There's a market for smart yeah, homes and smart appliances. Market of one person. Uh, actually, a growing market. But okay. one, what a lot of people don't realize, and this is a really big thing that I speak a lot uh, about, is that all of these devices are not just recording data. Sometimes they're listening. I mean... Some smart televisions can listen to you. Uh, Amazon, Alexa, Echo, and devices like that definitely are listening to you. But if you ask the Amazon uh, Alexa, for example, yeah. if you're listening, I've, I think I've asked her once, and she says, I do not record the conversations that we have. Yeah, she that... cannot lie, because that will be... Like, or can she lie? No, but that's the, okay. the, the, the laws of robots. Yes, but the three laws the rob of robotics as yeah. set forth by Isaac Asimov. Yeah. And, and by, as, as a sci-fi geek, I definitely look up to those ro um, three rules really? of robotics. But yes, I do. But the companies who make devices do not necessarily subscribe to the rules of robotics. The I only see. thing that prevents Alexa from recording your content or prevents a malicious attacker from hacking into a device like Alexa and mm -hmm. listening to your conversations is the quality of the code and the security mechanisms and algorithms put in place by the people who created Alexa. And uh, by the way, some of these companies, I don't want to name names or shame organizations, but some companies, even with the best intentions in, mi in mind, we have all experienced in the past year that even the biggest companies with the best intentions in mind still have security vulnerabilities, backdoors, mm -hmm. uh, bugs. But uh, then mishaps. comes yeah. the, someone like me would claim and I hear this more and more. What do I care? I I don't care about privacy at yeah. all. I have great, nothing great to hide. Yeah. Uh, on the do contrary, I mean, you got money to protect, look. though. Sorry. You have money to protect. Of course, yeah. But when it comes to home surveillance, like, what do I care? Nobody's gonna look through your webcam, and if they do, it's not interesting. That's what you think, right? No, even if it is, be my guest. I mean. That's you know? what a lot of people think, and it is a very common misconception. So let me give you what I think is the most uh, uh, crucial counterpoint. In October 2016, there was a massive denial-of-service attack that took offline websites that we all like to use, like Netflix, like iTunes, like PayPal, like Spotify. I could name you know, a whole bunch of other websites. Yeah. The attack that took down these websites, and by taking down, I mean the websites were unavailable in Europe and then in the US for people who were trying to surf them. It was a massive denial of service attack. A denial of service attack usually, uh, or recently in the recent techniques, is actually a cyber attack that utilizes a lot of devices around the world in the specific case of this incident, more than 100,000 different devices, different computers, if you will, around the world that were used to actually supercharge the attack, to overload uh, a DNS provider. Like and, yeah. torrent technology, 
or or uh, but the other way around the other right? way around yeah it's not uh, using the torrent protocol it was yeah, a different protocol but the yes. concept in particularly in that specific attack which was codenamed mirai which means the future in japanese just fyi in the mirai attack it was actually through taking down a dns service provider once again i don't expect you or the listeners to all know what dns is but suffice to say we all rely on dns resolving every time we surf the internet every time you open up a web browser and you look for google.com or facebook or another website that's a 30 year old technology basically. yeah yes it is and it is a fundamental technology that the entire internet relies on it is not run or managed by a corporate it is run managed by a few different organizations like uh, ICANN and other organizations and there are bugs and flaws in the protocol and in, in the way that it works because it was never designed to serve hundreds of millions of computers around the world in the way that it does the fact that it still works is kind of a miracle. Okay. But here's the thing about Mirai. Those hundreds and thousands of computers that facilitated the Mirai attack, many of them were people's webcams. They were DVRs, digital video recorders, like you might use to you know, make sure you don't miss that episode of Downtown Abbey. And uh, you know, refrigerators and toasters and things like that. Mostly, though, it was webcams and DVRs and some internet routers. And these are devices that belong to people just like you. Okay, who, but that's, yeah. I mean, they're taking down Netflix or taking down Amazon for or whatever websites they took down. Yeah. That's, a, that's an inconvenience. But, I mean, it's not a huge attack on my, I don't know, civil liberties. Well, first of all, you are an accessory to the attack. Right? Uh, okay. Your devices, your home devices, your home networks, let's say you're a big organization, you have 100 webcams. Your 100 webcams were now part of a criminal attack against somebody else's computer. And by, maybe with the Mirai attack, people are not going to be indicted for letting their devices be a part of the attack. But I think we have to realize that we are all connected. I know it sounds like a cliche. But, but that, it, how yeah. does that nullify the anti-privacy claim? That Sorry? I just claimed. How does okay. that nullify the fact that I don't care about, like, that I don't care so much about my privacy? Mm. You know, it doesn't really. Well, you know what I'm saying? Yes, I understand. So I'll give you a response. To okay, that as well. it's bad that they okay, use my computers. Okay, you don't care about your privacy, but I guess a lot of people would not like their webcams or their routers or the DVRs to be used uh, for a criminal attack, especially if it's one that overloads the internet, yeah. it makes your internet slower, it makes your internet more, more expensive because your ISP has to deal with all of these spammy, or not spammy, but all of these packets that are coming out of your network and you might actually get blacklisted. So let's say your device or your home router and your whole connection at home will get blacklisted for two weeks. You won't have any internet because yeah. your ISP has decided that you're part of a global attack. That's a little bit That's more than an Fun. It's not fun. It's maybe an inconvenience, maybe more. But I'll get back. To, I okay. want to get back to your privacy concern. Uh, a lot of people say, "Okay, well, I'm an open book. I don't have any secrets, and I don't care." That's okay. I actually respect that choice, and I think a lot of us have actually made that choice without making the choice because once we participate in the Facebook, Google, uh, social media ecosystem, WhatsApp, etc., we are already very much giving up a lot of our data anyway. So the fact if people make this as a conscious choice and they say, I don't have anything to hide, go ahead, gobble up my data, that's cool, that's okay. Here's a point though. Whatever data and whatever rights to our data and whatever privacy that we give up today is gone for good. So let's say 10 years from now, you're a different man. You want to run for Congress. Maybe there are some things that you're not so sure you want to be in the public eye anymore. Let's say in 10 years, you want to get a mortgage or you want to get an insurance premium right. or you get an insurance um, um, uh, policy. But now the insurance provider is not going to give you that policy. Is because Golden Shower from a prostitute in Moscow 
And that might be a liability. Okay. You see? Okay. So that's something that might be a liability. But I could get be the president of the United States, though. Apparently. Still, I wouldn't stop you from that. <laughs> Apparently, yeah. In fact, you know, in, in that particular incident, and we can talk about that if you like. Sure. But in that particular incident, I think uh, that in a hypothetical... Have you seen the film? No, the, I okay. haven't. Just and it's a hypothetical. I don't know okay. if it exists. But in that particular <laughs> hypothetical case, you could argue that a politician that had such incriminating information about him would be the choice of a certain state to or a certain nation state to help support because they actually have some leverage on him yeah. mm -hmm. or her uh, him in this case yeah uh, we can also you know if you'd like we can talk a little bit more about this issue I think election hacking or the manipulation sure. of digital elections sure. is very relevant these days how do you see that uh, so I'll tell you issue. what I, I'll tell you what I know for a fact I know a few things for a fact one thing is that um, in the past couple of years, social media has been a very important element in any election around the world, in any political process around the world. And in the past year, we have discovered, when I say we, I mean generally security researchers, not just myself, but the larger community of security researchers that I, I you know, quote unquote, represent here. So security researchers have uncovered that there are many ways to subvert digital and social media by creating Twitter bots, armies of Twitter profiles that are fake and help actually um, create an, an eco chamber of messages which are maybe pro one candidate or on the other hand, they can, if there is a fake news or a slanderous news item, for example, uh, for a period of time, there was a story about Hillary Clinton running a porn um, a porn studio in a pizza place or something yeah, like yeah. that, right? Child, uh, child, child porn, yeah, something. something like something really horrendous yeah, and yeah. ridiculous sounding. Pizza gate, pizza gate, exactly. Yeah. But the fact is that today social media has such an impact on people's opinions and on mainstream media that just by having an army of Twitter chat or not chatbots, but just Twitter bots and fake profiles, you can astroturf. You can create uh, a platform that allows these fake news to propagate mm -hmm. and become, you know, but that's all in the game as they say in Baltimore. Okay. I mean, what's, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with it? Yeah. Uh, well, I would say, first of all, in, from the point of view of Twitter and the, the platform, they are definitely sub subverting the terms of use of the platform. Secondly, I think there is very blatant manipulation of public opinion and uh, mainstream media. But thirdly, the... I, it's sad it's to say, but... It's always been, though. It's yeah, sad to say, the, but the... the, com the the unleashing of armies of Twitter bots is probably the least offensive thing that happened when it comes to digital manipulations so of elections. So what's the most? Of so the only, the, I said I'll know only things that I know for a fact. So okay. I don't want to deal with speculation. Okay. Yeah. The United States has already come out and said that several election boards and election databases in 39 states across the USA were breached by Russian or allegedly Russian state-sponsored hackers and that the data was either, uh, they attempted to corrupt it, delete it, or manipulate it. So this is something that has a massive effect on an election. Secondly, we know for a fact, once Did again... Did they manage to, though? Because isn't that the... This, uh, this like... is... I don't have the facts on that, so oh, I don't okay. want to speculate. But they did breach 39 states, different election boards mm -hmm. data. So they were, I guess, potentially able to del delete, manipulate, change, etc. Uh, thirdly, what we know for a fact, again, I'm not dealing in conspiracy theories, uh, there is a, one current convicted election hacker in the world. His name is Andrea Sepulveda, and he's serving a prison sentence in Colombia. And according to his own confession, over the course of 10 years, he helped various Latin American governments and politicians get elected in a variety of ways, including hacking the other candidates, including 
Twitter bots and armies, including manipulation and, and disruption of technology. So this mm-hmm. is what we know that has happened in Latin America because he has confessed to everything that he's done. Yeah. We also know that in France, for example, the mainstream media, mainstream media channel TV, um, Le Monde, I think, or TV Monde, uh, was hacked in a very particular moment during a meeting of a lot of the cabinet ministries in part of the campaign, uh, the current presidential election. We know that the days before the crucial election dates in, in France, there was a massive leak of documents about the Macron, yes. uh, mm-hmm. Macron candidate. Yeah. And we even know from the CSO, the oh. chief security officer who worked for Macron, how the the hackers got hold of these documents and what they attempted to do with them. But didn't they put out those articles so they, that the hackers would get they put hold out of them? The, they didn't put out all of the articles. What they did is that they learned lessons from the American elections mm-hmm. and they were prepared. And I, you know, I, I tip my hat or chapeau to the CSO working for Macron, who was prepared as a chief security officer. He prepared the, the campaign team with these some some fake documents and some fake login names and data as a bait, if you will, to see uh-huh, if yeah. those hackers would go after them. And they did. So we yeah. know that all of these things happened for a fact. This is not conspiracy. So would you say... I what mean, we don't know is is the big question. I think. Whether or not it actually took effect. Well, whether you know, this is a topic for speculation, yeah. for political analysts, etc. Would you, would you say that, you know, in light of these things that are happening around the world, I mean, this Latin American uh, guy who's in prison right yeah. now who actually confessed to influencing elections blatantly, yes. manipulating the outcome of elections. In several Latin American countries. Maybe, maybe there is, maybe there are certain processes or maybe there are certain things that take place in this world that shouldn't be computerized. Maybe we should count votes. That's a, that's a great but, question. But votes have been faked when it was analog for decades, even mm-hmm. here in Israel, even I, now. I imagine even that now in the in the Avodah elections where uh, uh, they said, I think I don't remember. One of the candidates said a truck with votes uh, went from Haifa to Tel Aviv. It's always it, it's a, a <laughs> bus of Arabs, a truck of votes. No, a truck of <laughs> votes of a vote like actual box. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah. locked box ca- uh, uh, went uh, drove from Haifa to Tel Aviv. It should have taken two hours. It took ten hours. Where did it go in the middle? Someone, it had a few stops in the way. The pancake house, perhaps. Mm. Okay. So well, that I, was I, analog I, elections. If I wasn't on a diet, I'd go for a pancake. But <laughs> to, to speak about the, this issue, you know, I agree. I think some things should be analog. But here's the reality. We embrace digital technologies because they bring a lot of benefits. They are not bad, right? They bring a lot of benefits. They save lives. They improve lives. They create value and opportunities. They help equalize a lot of social situations. They provide job opportunities. Digital technologies are great. In certain areas of our life, they bring a lot of risk. In particular, and by the way, you, you asked, you started by asking me what's information security. The reason I'm talking, or what's cybersecurity? The reason I'm talking about cybersecurity and not information security is because I think the security of our physical infrastructures, of safety, of voting systems, of medical devices, mm-hmm. of cars, these are really the issues that I'm concerned with the most these are the issues that some of the the hacker groups or the friendly hacker groups that i'm involved with and the, the ethical researchers that i'm involved with these are the things that we're focused on it's not about saving your uh, credit card number or your facebook password so okay so what apart from antivirus antivirus what can we do as individuals yeah and what do you suggest yeah what 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 technologies i think maybe like automated cars for example yeah what what things are you really concerned about that are coming that seem to be coming soon Mm -hmm. that could present real threats as far as so two areas where there's a lot of new digital technology adoption which is happening kind of uh, very fast definitely faster than the ability to secure it one area is medical devices and medical technologies and the 
digitization of healthcare, which is an mm-hmm. area where digitization is bringing enormous benefits. Yeah. Lots of life-saving new developments. And the second area is autonomous vehicles and generally uh, the digital mobility, so the turning, the making of cars into smarter and more connected, etc. Yeah, that's terrifying because if a hacker takes over, I don't know, a certain mainframe, I'm using words, I don't even know what they mean, <laughs> yeah. but it takes over some kind of, you know, it's, server it's that controls all yeah. these these cars, no, he couldn't like technically I would just send make your a car. Th- this is exactly, but I don't know if you guys like uh, Fast and Furious, but I do, and I like Charlize Theron, and she actually portrays a super villain, which is refreshing, in the latest Fast and Furious movie. And there's actually a scene where she uses uh, a vulnerability, that means a security bug, to hack into a bunch of vehicles and actually use them to target the um, the protagonist of um, Vin Diesel. I forgot his uh, character's yeah. name, but Tri- no, not Triple X. I'm getting all. Yeah, that's a, that's yeah, a different yeah, movie. A they kind of look the same, don't yeah. they? But he's he's very cool. He's a cool guy. It's a cool movie. But the fact is that the Fast and Furious they always get this rep for being like uh, out there and like action scenes that are totally unrealistic. Specifically with the car hacking scene that they showed. The capacity to right now control like 50 vehicles uh, remotely is not there. But there has been demonstrated by security researchers, that means by friendly hackers, the capacity to remotely hack into a Jeep Jeep Cherokee 2015 model using a cellular connection and taking it off the road. You can watch the video. It's Wait, this is a car that is not fully autonomous. No, this is... This is just a regular because old it's car. A regular car. Because yes. think about it. All cars today are computerized completely. Not all of them, but many of them. And Most in fact, not just cars. Uh, airplanes, you know, um, electric um, trains, trams, yeah. transportation systems. It's all computerized. We rely heavily on digital technologies in many, area, many areas of our life. And we... Just take them for granted and see it is completely seamless. Mm-hmm. Whereas the reality is that there is a lot of uh, technology that's making all of these magical things So what happen. do we do? I know, I, yeah. I think, I don't know where I saw it, that, for example, in Israel, so you have an isolated, uh, where the internet uh, is uh, coming into our country. When yes. it pours in, there's a center. And there they have, oh, and also I saw in the in the film uh, Zero Days, so you have like, uh, how do you call it? Uh, 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 like an air uh, space, the confined air space, gap? air gap, exactly, okay. air gap. So okay. this is a solution, for example? And no, not exactly. Uh, <laughs> also, nice try, though. Also, <laughs> no, that's okay. Uh, How, did you like the movie, by the way? We're swinging in the dark yeah, here. Yeah, you yeah. don't understand. Okay. We're so far. So I'll, I'll try I'll try and... Uh, There's a huge air gap between sure. your knowledge did and you ours. Did you like uh, Zero Days, by the way? Did, did you see it? Yeah, I actually uh, was interviewed for that film and was edited out of it. Oh, no. So yes. now we hate the film. Because what? the... Di- I, yes, because the director... I don't know why. Let's not say okay. why. Okay. I, I think I know why, but... I, I, uh, I hear you. Okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, they were very nice, very professional, and... Um, so it's a good movie to watch if you want to it's understand. It's a re- very relevant movie to watch. There's a few other movies I would be happy to recommend. Okay. Uh, for me, by the way, if we're talking about hacking and movies, it's got to be the all-time classic, Hackers, from 1995. It's the reason I'm in this business to begin with. It's the, the reason I, I do what I do. When I saw that movie, I was 13, 14. And as a kid, I saw this movie portraying a bunch of high school hackers in New York City. And back then, 1995, they were hacking into the, you know, so-called mainframes, uh, controlling the traffic light systems in, in Manhattan, or uh, taking over the screens in uh, Times Square, mm-hmm. or um, tracking down an FBI agent and making his credit cards um, um, not expire. 
a max out, maxing out mm. an FBI agent's credit card so that he wouldn't be able to take his wife out for dinner or a whole bunch of fun things that oh. I don't think in the, in the 90s were actually very realistic. Today, they are becoming more and more frighteningly realistic. But that movie was really a big inspiration for me. And that's also, I mean, if I understood, I might be making a big mistake here, but also part of your research is cyberpunk is like researching like, uh, like cyber... security in in artwork or in uh, literature and finding out how it influences what reality yeah so uh, cyberpunk is a name for a science fiction genre which mm-hmm. was mostly prevalent in the early 80s and the mid 90s some cy- cyberpunk authors that we could talk about are William Gibson who wrote a very important piece of work called neuromancer mm-hmm. William Gibson is actually credited as the first person who I believe in 1982 invented the term cyberspace. So in 1982, this, it doesn't exactly predate the internet because the invention of the internet as DARPANET, as a network of computers run mostly by the defense agency research projects in mm-hmm. the U.S. and connecting only academics and, and military people, the idea was already kind of being germinated. The idea that there c- could exist a global network or maybe even not a global network, but a network of computers where communication happens and a lot of people from different parts of the world can partake in that. But in 1982, you really had to be a visionary like, like William Gibson to create a piece of work um, called Neuromancer and imagine this cyberspace. He really, it, like whatever movie that you've seen, like The Matrix or Hackers or any other movie that you've seen, Johnny Mnemonic, these movies really... all build a lot on the ideas that he created. Mm-hmm. Other author, authors are Neil Stephenson, who wrote a book called Snow Crash, and then later on, Cryptonomicon, which was very influential. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of them. But the thing about cyberpunk sci- science fiction, which I really see as important, this is part of my early research work. It's not really something I, I spend my day-to-day on, but I'm just a big sci-fi geek, um, is that a lot of these works of fiction imagined hackers before there were hackers, before mm-hmm. there was the internet. The, and they imagined hackers as protagonists, as heroes, as change agents, as not just the bad guys, but actually a lot of the times those who saved the day. Hacktivists. Hacktivists, yeah. Hacktivism also actually begun, uh, you could say, in the 90s, even before that. There were groups of hacktivists from... before the internet became as popular and as widespread and as common as we see them today. How would you define hack- are, hacktivism? So hacktivism is the combination of hacking and activism. And um, uh, what, right, today we think mostly about hacktivists like Anonymous, right? It became mm-hmm. a, a brand, if you will, or a face for a hacktivism. But hacktivism existed back in the 90s. There would be hacktivist crews who would... basically uh, do the equivalent of, di- of protests in the digital realm. So they could put on a graffiti on somebody's website or they could take down a website if it was an organization they disagreed with. That's violence. Uh, it is a different form of protest, you could also say. Yes, okay. it is vandalism. It could be described. This is exactly the thing about hacktivism and about cyberpunk. Uh, th- the original definition of cyberpunk, I think somebody coined it, it was um, high tech and low life. It was this combination of a, a potentially dystopian world where technology rules everything and people's values, ethics, ideologies, our behaviors change. And some of us end up being not always the good guys because mm-hmm. of the way we use technology, because of the way it changes society. Right. If you've seen any, you know, Philip K. Dick, by the way, is a, um, 
science fiction author. You also wrote Do Androids Dream of Electric yeah. Sheep? Blade Runner. Blade Runner. Blade Runner is often credited as being one of the first visions of cyberpunk in film. Yeah, I although can't, yes. my favorite film in history is Brazil. Brazil. Yeah, Terry which Gilliam. Was bef- no, it was a year after, I think, Blade Runner. Yes. But also, I think... Terry very, Gilliam has also yeah. more recent works, like The Zero Theorem, which is yes. very cyberpunkish, I would say. Yeah, that no uh, one saw. Uh, I, I did <laughs> at a sci-fi convention. Okay. Uh, but the, the point is really, just to, to go back to the big picture here, is that a lot of the times it is science fiction authors. It's people like Warren Ellis, by the way, is a great, great creator. He created Transmetropolitan. In, Transmetropolitan is a comic book and a, a graphic novel where the president of the U.S. and uh, the behaviors of politics really resemble what's happening right now in the United States. And he wrote Transmetropolitan like 20 years ago. Hmm. Watchmen by Alan Moore is another great example. A lot of the times, sci-fi authors use genres like cyberpunk to explore a near future, a future okay. which is actually not, you know, it's not fantastic robots living on Mars. It's mm-hmm. us on, on planet Earth. So what it's did just you study Technology then? is what changed everything. What did you study about it then? When um, you researched it? Uh, well, for me, it was always about the depiction of hackers. Are the hackers the heroes? Are they the anti-heroes? Right. Uh, how, in some cases, the depiction of hackers in fiction inspired and created real hackers in the real world. I see. I was inspired to become a hacker because I saw a movie. Mm-hmm. Today, there are, I think, I hope, a lot of positive role models which are not fictional. Maybe some kid can you know, watch Mr. Robot and decide they want to become a hacker. Or listen to this podcast. And listen to this podcast, right? The difference is I'm a real person. I'm not a fictional character. Yeah. And the researchers and the work uh, that, and their work and the, the work of other security researchers that we feature at events like Cyber Week and B-Sides, which is the hacker conference that we just wrapped up two weeks ago. These are real world people who are finding vulnerabilities and things that we all rely on all the time. So it's not fictional at all. And they, to me, it's very inspiring because yeah so um i want to because i let us down a tangent with the whole cyberpunk thing take us back for a second because we were going to talk about how israel or a nation state can protect itself yeah um well i don't i don't want to talk about how a nation can protect itself i would like to talk about how individuals can protect themselves okay because i think personally it's more valuable and things that we can do there is a very um tempting um it's very tempting to expect, you know, the National Security Agency or the Military Cyber Bureau to, you know, protect us, to put a big firewall outside our country. That is an unrealistic expectation. It's not going to happen and it's not going to, it may, might help a little bit. And there's definitely a role for governments and for the Israeli government and the American government to protect its people in cyberspace. But there's a lot that people, individuals can do. And first of all, each and every one of us at home, in the office, with our gadgets, with our phones, with our uh, smart TVs, with our cars, with our Amazon Alexas, whatever devices we are, we have to start taking responsibility for these devices and understand that we are kind of our own CTOs. We have to be the, the chief technology officer or the chief security officer for all of the devices and technologies. Does that, that we include use. my grandfather who has a, an iPhone? That's a great question. <laughs> you know what? Because he's 82 and yeah. uh, I don't know if he can be a CTO. I, I agree with you. I don't know I don't know if my mom can be a CTO. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of us, especially people who are more tech savvy, end up being the CTOs for, you know, the entire clan, right? For the for the whole family. Yeah. It's better than story of my life. It's better than not being responsible at all. I'm don't I don't expect everybody to start configuring their firewalls. This would be also a naive and unrealistic expectation on my part. I think as consumers, though, we have a lot of power. When we buy a new car, when we buy a device, when we are, you know, when we buy a fridge and the sales 
person says, well, it's a smart fridge. It has an app and you can be hacked. I don't know if you've seen. No, he won't, he won't tell you that it can be hacked, right? He yeah. will sell you a smart fridge for more money. Very bad salesman. I don't know if you guys, uh, if you've seen Silicon Valley. And, of course. But this is a, you know, a scenario yeah. that was explored in the show. Sure. And I think very rightfully so. Most people buy these devices. And we started off talking about this because we, are, we tend to think everybody, everything which is smarter is better for us. A lot of the times it's not. And as consumers, we can actually demand better. We can ask our ISP, okay, how can I protect myself? How should I configure my router? Or is there anything I could be doing differently? We could, um, when we are downloading apps, for example, if you are downloading an app and it's free, ask yourself, how am I paying if this is a yeah. free app? Yeah, it's yeah, a, yeah. a very common uh, saying, a, a truism of the internet age. But are you saying sometimes yes. I need to choose not to buy the smart fridge and not to download this app? Yes, and I think sometimes more than that, as consumers, we need to ask and demand better. When we go to the store, when we have the buying power, whether we're individuals in our homes or in our companies, communities, when we're spending money on technology, even if that technology is, let's say you're setting up a new website for your business. Okay, I would expect you to, when, when spending, up, spending the money for setting up a new website, to ask the provider, whoever it is that's you know, setting up the site for you, whether it's Wix or GoDaddy or you know, WordPress, whatever it is, to tell you what they're doing in terms of security. And I would expect or I encourage people to ask them, what I are see. you doing? And what, what, more, what more security features can you offer? And not take you know, vague answers, not take those answers. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of power as consumers. So let me ask this, what, what individual, we, we talked about what we can do to defend ourselves, but what individual or organization is, is probably the biggest threat out there, poses the wow, biggest threat out wow, there? Wow, that's a very big question. I think uh, it really, it does, first of all, it depends on who you are. If you're a president of a state, then probably a nation state team of hackers working for, there's particularly a, a bunch of countries right now in the world that have been you know, we shouldn't be surprised. They have been very quick to understand the potential of That's cyber espionage. China, Rus Russia, Iran. North Korea. North Korea. Uh, there's a few more I would add to that list, but yeah, you kind of pretty much covered yeah. it. They're uh, good. Let's put this on the table. They're not right? only good, they have a lot of resources yeah. because they spent, they made a decision. These are countries that are not all of them run as democracies. Oh, and, that's an and, understatement. You know, I None of be, them, actually. I try to be polite. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, 10 years ago or even 15 years ago, somebody at the top made a decision that cyber warfare and cyber capabilities are going to be a top discipline for us, a top priority. We're going to train people. We're going to invest. We're going to set up these units. This is going to be a big part of how we get back or we, how we get even with the much more uh, fluent industrialized West, right? right? Mm -hmm. We should not be surprised that they find this as a tool that is very cost yeah. effective for these countries. It, it would be very naive of us to expect them not to use do they, these capabilities. Do, do you think that there's a, a room for private organizations to... Uh, what, what, I mean, what role do they play in cybersecurity for a, a very, nation, for a, individuals? A very big role, particularly, uh, well, private organizations is a big term. I, I yeah. want to break it down. Particularly the technology giants. Mm -hmm. So companies like Google, like Microsoft, like Facebook, like Apple, Amazon, Yahoo, PayPal. Uh, companies that really serve billions of people mm -hmm. and their technologies are fundamentally used all around the world, they have very big responsibility in my point of view. Some of them uh, stand up to that responsibility and do a lot. Some of them not as much. Uh, like who? So Yahoo has been uh, unfortunately recently implicated with or 
they've been it's been discovered that they were uh, involved with several data breaches of, of involved the involved or negligent that's a great question that the courts would have to answer ah, I, okay. I, I'm not here to judge them uh, uh, I can definitely say that I don't recommend using Yahoo services because as, as a company for many years they did not prioritize cyber there security. goes the sponsorship from Yahoo I'm sorry podcast. I'm sorry did you we were have... getting millions of dollars okay from yeah yeah we're just about the sign yeah I would suggest maybe start uh, getting bitcoins instead oh, of dollars. Okay. Oh. From, yeah, you can get more donations from the hacker okay, okay. ecosystem. Uh, but to go back to your point, uh, and, and there's more that people can do at home. You can, you know, people don't spend uh, $20 bucks on, a, on a paid antivirus service. Or they, they don't spend $20 bucks or $30. Bucks, but I'm sure okay. you spend more than $20 or $30 bucks a year on, you know, or a month on coffee at Starbucks or another place. So if you, don't, if you spend more money on coffee than the security of the data on your laptop or on your home devices, you're going to get hacked. So the free antiviruses are scam, basically. That's what you're saying. I'm not saying they're all scams, but I think I personally believe very much in the saying that, again, I mentioned it maybe earlier, if you're not paying, you are the product. So there are particular things that I would prefer to pay for. It's the same way you pay for an insurance premium or a mm-hmm, policy. Mm-hmm. You, when you take your car to the garage, you don't expect them to fix it or check it for free. Yeah. Unless you, you're a very... That is you know, contradicting to the fact that we, especially us, the younger generation, you know, we grew up into the free world. Free in as in everything, your data is free to be used by... Everything is mine for free. for free. Yeah. Everything is mine for free. Everything Music, is for free. If movies, you, antivirus, software, everything. If you click, I have read and accepted the terms of use. If you've given yeah. over your data, then there, there was it's a transaction. It's very hard to change that mentality. I understand, but there was a transaction there. It's not free with no strings attached. The transaction, yeah. the implicit one that perhaps an entire generation has bought into is that... Uh, I don't care about my data. I don't care about privacy. I don't care about, I don't even need to own my digital assets, right? I can stream them. I don't need to own my emails. They're not going to sit here on a hard drive in, in my garage. They're going to sit in the cloud somewhere. You know what that means? It means that one day you can also be revoked that access. Yeah. Or, you, lose you know, your life, basically. Um, maybe a big chunk of your life. Yeah. You know, today, all of these things are free. One day, maybe even gradually soon, more and more of these services will start charging money for various, you know, for keeping your digital assets and keeping, actually just letting you still have access to your own data. So, so they all become a, a, a ransomware in a sense. Uh, in a <laughs> sense, right? You know, the ransomware cam- campaigns are so successful because the criminals figured out something very, very simple. We really care about our data. Just explain uh, ransomware in one sentence. Okay, sure. Ransomware is um, currently uh, trending type of cyber attack uh, where your computer gets infected with a virus and this virus uh, doesn't just mess up your files it actually encrypts your files and then requests a small ransom to be paid usually in bitcoin in order to give you back your own data so it's almost not big sums by uh, the not way. big sums no that's, because that's, they that's want the ingeni- they ing- actually want you to pay yeah. And they actually, they, a lot of the, rans- the bigger ransomware campaigns are successful because they even spend time and money and they invest in customer service. They will give you a sample decrypted file to prove to you that the decryption actually works. They respond back to you it's on chat, on, on, on WhatsApp, on ICQ. They will communicate with do you. Do they do a follow-up after the service is completed to see yeah. that you had what, a What can we do better? Yeah, what can we do better Not that I know of, not that I know of, but uh, it is very successful because they... That's unbelievable. It is a killer app. For criminals, because um, really think about it, it's the perfect crime. They don't have to break into your room. They don't even have to take anything away. 
They, mm-hmm. they don't even need to steal your credit card and then figure out a way to monetize the theft of your data or your credit card. Yeah. They're selling your data back to you. Yeah. Right? And you pay for being un- not cautious enough. You pay for being uncautious. You pay for not having backups. You pay for not having a pretty good, solid antivirus product in place, which is not a panachea. It's not a solution for anything, but it's a good first step. You pay for clicking on things that you should not have clicked on. So you're saying, saying big company, companies saw that and they see some, like their eyes turn into dollars, basically, when they see ransomware. Which companies? You, said, you imply that maybe big companies in the future will, will start charging... for yeah. your data okay after after uh, you know I, i understand what you're saying i've not been saying, interpreted yes as i'm not saying that th- i'm not going I'm, okay the best analogy here's the best analogy i can come up with i think it is a lot like uh, feudal times like the times where there was mm-hmm. a, a lord of the land and he would control who would get you know a piece of land who would farm the land who would create you know products on the land and how much of those agricultural products would would the, the farmer actually get to keep and use for his own so a lot of the big technology companies they are like feudal lords and they control the land the land is Facebook and Google and Instagram and all of these digital assets and right now they're great lords they give us you know access for free and benefits and services that we don't necessarily use but maybe most of us do use like tools and technologies to connect with our friends. At one point, the lords of the mansion might decide that it's not enough for them and they need to make more money. So they're going to change the way that the farmlands are being distributed and they're going to reduce the percentage of what we get out of it and they're going to ask us for more. And at I that see. point in time, we are going to be so much in debt or so much locked in to this feudal setup that there's really no way to opt out. In fact, even today, It would be very difficult. I ask myself this question all the time. It would be very difficult tomorrow to opt out, you know, stop using Google, stop using Facebook, uh, stop using WhatsApp, stop using a lot of well, in The Walking Dead, they're doing just fine without all this. In The Walking Dead, the TV show. Yes, also the Amish. Also, yeah, uh, although I, I heard they have the grid. I heard they have smartphones now. Uh, so, mm. you know, yes, there are alternatives, but there are fewer populations on the world that are staying off the grid and right. more and more people are getting connected in more ways. Maybe they just have the old Nokia phones, but they're so far behind. They call them <laughs> the smartphones. They just they're still That's, operating with like dial. Yes. That's probably what's that, going on. That there. could be. That could be. I in the last few minutes we have, I wanted to oh, talk we, a little okay, bit. Okay, I spoke uh, for a lot. Sorry, <laughs> no, it's good. I wanted to <laughs> talk a little bit about the fact I, because in interviews you said how in conventions you intended, especially the biggest convention in '99, you were the only girl. Yeah. Uh, the here first in Israel. convention. That was my first yeah, hacker convention in Israel. Yes. And I want to ask you about that aspect. First of all, how many girls... I, I feel like girls still code less today than, than boys, okay. women than men. And second of all, what do women have to offer to the hacking community? What do humans have to offer to the hacking community? We're humans, man. Yeah, no, I think But he you, means I'm, like, well, I'm going to come to your defense here real thank quick you. before thank you bear you. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Do women <laughs> offer something unique that's, that's, that's okay. different than what so, men offer? Okay, so first of all, you said that uh, there are less women who program or participate in, in industry than men. This is true. Statistically, it is true. It isn't... Uh, It, but it doesn't have to stay that way. And I'm working very hard and I'm trying How? Uh, in many ways. In 2016, I published a book called Women in Tech, A Practical Guide. It's on would, Amazon? 
Yes, it is. It's an Amazon bestseller. How is it called? Uh, uh, women in Tech, a Practical okay. Guide. Uh, it is a collaboration with eight women. It started as a Kickstarter project and then got uh, picked up by Penguin Random House for publication. We're now in the third edition. And it Amazing. Thank you. I'm very proud of it. And it includes advice uh, by many women from different backgrounds. So here's to answer your question, what women are bringing to the table as, you know, humans. But it was his, it was it was his question. question. So I, I, think, no. I think it's very obvious um, to anybody. Really, the, the benefits are, should be obvious. But anybody who walks into a room which is filled with 200 of the same thing would obviously see the benefit of having different you know a, a more diverse group of people in the room sure and that that doesn't just mean gender it also means a, a background ethnicity age uh walk of life and that's something that has changed in the hacker community when i went to my first convention in 1999 when i first when i went to my first defcon which is the annual biggest hacker convention in las vegas yes mostly i saw white guys um and it looked pretty much like the cast of silicon valley give or take uh, of the show, but yeah. that has changed and it has changed dramatically. There are a lot of researchers, uh, there's a lot of data that says, and we started off the top of the hour talking about this, that the security industry needs more talent. Cisco estimates there's a million more cybersecurity positions to be filled. So we better address 50% of the, that potential workforce. That's my point of view. Mm -hmm. And I think there's more and more uh, women and more and more people from all walks of life that were not traditionally a part of this sub you know, subculture called hackers. Uh, yes, originally hackers in the 90s and the 80s, it started, it was a very American thing. It was a very um, male thing, mostly male dominated, but it is not going to be that way forever. And it's already changing. Mm -hmm. And it's also not just an American thing, right? There are hackers in Japan. There are hackers in Latin America. There are hackers in Africa. Hackers in Israel. In Israel. But my TED talk was translated to 30 languages. And I get emails from people from all over the world. Emails and messages. Yes, every day. Every day I get a message at least once, if not a couple of messages on all the different platforms from people from, you know, India and Africa and Korea and all, you know, people with bad English, broken English. They're just sending me a message to let me know that they found it inspiring. Not just women, people, guys, girls, old people, younger people. So I really believe, I know it sounds romantic and naive, but I really believe that there's a lot of... Uh, friendly hackers out there and there's mm -hmm. a lot a lot of people who would like to become friendly yet to hackers. be yes exactly so yeah. that's why I started off by talking about hacking the planet yeah, no it makes I mean it's it's just another platform and you have the good and you have the bad and it's going to be another stage on which yes. you know hacking is a capability and it can be used yeah. for a lot of malicious things but the reality is hackers have done already a lot of amazing things mm -hmm. and security researchers by breaking things have actually demonstrated issues and forced everybody to deal with them so we need that sort of activity in yeah. the world karen thank you you are truly inspiring before we go yes thank you uh, thank you guys. we have two cooperations Eitan? We uh, have a cooperation with the Jewish Journal, which is uh, Jewish news out in L.A. It's a website, jewishjournal.com. Uh, and a newspaper. Great source of Jewish news out in L.A. Yeah. And uh, we also have a cooperation with Secret Tel Aviv, which is a 150,000 strong uh, member, strong group uh, on Facebook. And that has great recommendations. And a for, website. And a website. Okay. Recommendations for restaurants, for events, for stuff. So... Yeah, check those out, guys. Cool. And Next year, we'll tell a secret Tel Aviv about our hacker convention yeah. besides TLV yeah. so that they can get more people so in. So you want in, in a minute to, to, to tell about it? Just 
it is just finished, right? Yes. So just uh, 10 days ago, we wrapped up Tel Aviv Cyber Week, which is an, a big event Tel Aviv University hosts every year. This year, we had 7,000 attendees from 60 countries from all over the world. And for the second wow. year, we've co-hosted an event called Security B-Sides TLV. B-SidesTLV.com. You can check out the site. It's part of a global network of hacker conventions, hacker community events called Security B-Sides. There are more than 400 security B-Sides around the world from Athens, Greece to Sao Paulo, Brazil, and as of 2016, also in Tel Aviv. Last week, uh, 10 days ago, was our 2017 event. We had 500 attendees, women, men, people from all backgrounds, from international audiences, from local audiences, 16-year-olds and religious women from Jerusalem. Everybody was invited and welcome. And uh, with me here today is actually Reut Menashe, who was one Hi, of... Reut. Hi, Reut. Raoult <laughs> uh, was uh, one of the great team of volunteers that helped me run this event and we're so proud of it and we hope to see many people from the US uh, and from all over the world join us at B-Sides TLV 2018. Is there a website? Yes, B-Sides TLV, B-S-I-D-E-S-T-L-V.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. And you are on Twitter also. Yes, I'm very active on Twitter, K3R3N3. Three three. We'll put a link also, oh, yeah. and we'll put a link to your TED Talk, which is amazing, thank and you. to your Amazon book. And that was it. Eitan, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. Thanks, Thanks. Karen. Bye. Bye.